theyeshiva.net. Thank you so, so much to the Hebrew Free Burial Association for this unique privilege and invitation to address you this evening. I know that we're not addressing an exciting, uh, joyous subject. We're going to be discussing burial in Jewish culture, tradition, law, mysticism, spirituality. And yet, you know, we Jews, the Talmud says that one of the greatest sages, Rabbi, before he would begin a serious lecture, even if it was a very intense subject, he would always begin with an anecdote, what we call a milsa de b'dichisa. Allow me as well to begin with two anecdotes on the subject. Anecdote number one, especially dedicated to my dear brothers and sisters who live in New York City, especially in Manhattan or Brooklyn, you will, or Queens, you will uniquely appreciate this anecdote. They say a story that was once a police officer passed away, but he wasn't just any police officer. He was considered one of the most celebrated police officers. He has given more tickets, more tickets than any other officer in the history of the United States of America. Day in, day out, faithfully, he managed to obtain ticket after ticket to penalize people breaking the law this way or that way, giving them summons after summons, and finally his day came. And they lower the coffin into the grave. And the priest, the clergyman, who's there officiating at the funeral, suddenly hears a little voice, a subtle voice from the coffin. And the clergyman bends down. And this officer says, Father, Father, I'm not dead. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. And the priest looks down at the coffin and he says, Sorry, pal, but I already began the paperwork. Anecdote number two. A Jew, Yankel, was known as one of the stingiest Jews of the decade. Wealthy, but stingy. Calls up the rabbi. Says, Rabbi, you know, I'm preparing for the day of truth, for the day of reckoning when I'm going to return my soul. And I'm trying to get the right person to eulogize me and present a eulogy that really befits my unique and extraordinary sublime character. The rabbi says it would be an honor. But rabbi, how much would a eulogy cost? I have to know. I can't just spend any amount of money. The rabbi says, well, there are three packages He says, let me hear. He says, there's a super deluxe package. It costs $9,000 for the eulogy. Yankel says, what? What do I get for that? The rabbi says, I tell your story in the most eloquent of ways, and I sob throughout the story. $9,000? You're meshige. I'm not paying that. What's the next level? He says, the next is a deluxe package. How much is that? Five grand. Five grand? What do I get for that? He says, I extol your virtues in the most eloquent and extraordinary way. I don't cry, but I tell the incredible story of your good deeds, of the legacy you live, of the, of the, of you leave, of the values and ideals that you have enriched our world with, of all the charitable causes that you supported. He says, Rabbi, five thousand dollars? No way! What's the cheapest package? Rabbi says, you can get the basic package. He says, how much is that? He says, 500 bucks. He says, Rabbi, what, what type of eulogy do I get for $500? The rabbi says, I tell the truth. Now, 
We are gathered here this evening to commemorate a very unique Jewish organization that's been around for more than 130 years. That's a long time in American history. Most organizations are much younger than this. Remember, the American Jewish community is not that old. But this organization, the Hebrew Free Burial Association, has been around for more than a century. Its mission statement is simple as it is moving to ensure that every single Jew who dies alone or any single Jew who dies impoverished will receive a proper, dignified Jewish funeral and Jewish burial. Many of the burials conducted by the Hebrew Free Burial Association you can define as the classic title in Jewish law known as a mace mitzvah. Somebody who passes away and there's a Torah commandment to take care of them because there is no family. There are no relatives or there's no money to be able to bring them to proper burial. No family, no friends, no community. Not all of their burials have been classified as such, but many. This unique association organization owns their own cemetery in Staten Island, which allows them to bring all of these holy Jews to burial. During a normal year, the Hebrew Free Burial Association arranges around 380 burials. This year, due to the circumstances revolving around the coronavirus, the Hebrew Free Burial Association buried more than 436 of our holy and beautiful brothers and sisters. Each funeral on average costs the Hebrew Free Burial Association $5,400. That's the cost of a funeral from the beginning, from transporting the, transporting the body and burying it all the way down to putting up a small tombstone. $5,400 for a funeral. Their costs this year are running $1 million over their anticipated budget. And hence tonight's fundraiser for this extraordinary Hebrew Free Burial Association. There is something unique about the way Jews and Judaism have treated even a lifeless corpse. The dignity, the respect. It's one of the great fundamental laws which is inculcated in every single Jewish child from the youngest age. We have a name for it in Jewish law. It's called Kavad Hames. Unique honor and dignity that is attributed even to somebody who has passed away already, even though you're dealing apparently with a lifeless corpse. It has become ingrained into Jewish law, ethics, morality, culture, history, tradition. goes back all the way to Genesis. God tells the first human being, Adam, Afar Atov El Afar Toshuv. You come from the earth, Vel Afar Toshuv, you're going to one day be returned to the earth. A little later in Genesis, we have that elaborate, dramatic and unique story with the first Jewish man and the first Jewish woman, Abraham and Sarah. Ultimately, after living together for so many years, Sarah passes away. And then the Torah could have completed the story very, very briefly, as it usually does. And say, Abraham, say, right, Avram, Abraham bought a cave in the city of Hebron, and he buried his wife there. Instead, we have a long chapter of a long, detailed, intricate negotiation that our patriarch, the first Jew, Abraham, engages with the Chittites, with Ephraim, in order to purchase a plot of land, a cave, in which he and Sarah will be able to be buried. He will be buried there, ultimately Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, according to tradition, even Adam and Eve. 
Later in Genesis, Yaakov, Jacob, is in Egypt. He's about to die. And he makes his son, the Prime Minister Joseph, swear, Take me out of Egypt. I want to be able to lay together with my fathers, together with my father, my grandmother, together with my mother and my grandmother. I want to be together with Avram and Yitzchak and Sarah and Rivka. Later in Deuteronomy, talking about somebody who received the death penalty, the Torah says, in Kisechi, cover tikberenu bayoimahu. Make sure you bury him that day that from there we learn the mitzvah of burial. Even later, in the prophets, Joshua, Yeshua, kills the king of Ai, but the Tanakh makes sure to specify that he buried him. Until today, it's been the Jewish custom to go visit the grave sites of our loved ones, of our fathers, our mothers, our grandparents, the grave sites of holy, righteous Jews throughout the generations. Already the Talmud tells us that Kalev, one of the 12 scouts that Moses sent to survey the land, went to Hebron, to the cave of the Machpelah, to beseech and to pray to God at the resting place of the matriarchs. Till Corona, probably the physical greatest gathering of Jews was around the burial place of Reb Shimon Bar Yechai, that great second century Talmudic sage Rashbi, who was buried in the city of Miron in the Galil in northern Israel on his yard site, like Boimer, more than a half a million Jews gathered to dance. They light a fire, they dance, they celebrate, they learn his teachings, and the Jewish people unite at that unique place. An interesting thing that many people don't know. Every time we say grace after meals, we wash for bread, we have a meal, and then we do Birchat HaMazon, benching. The blessing after the meal, there's three blessings, and then there's a fourth one that was added much later by the rabbis. It's called Hatoy Vahametiv. You know when it was added? The Talmud tells us, around the year 100 was after the great rebellion by Bar Koichva. Second temple was destroyed in the year 70 after the Kamen era. Around 60, 65 years later, Bar Koichva staged a revolt. It was a very successful revolt. It went on for three years. Rome, the Roman legions were defeated dramatically. Rabbi Akiva even believed that Bar Kochva is possibly the Mashiach who's going to rebuild the third temple. At the end, sadly, the revolt was crushed by the Romans. And that last fortress of Beitar, where so many Jews were gathered and fighting against the Romans, ultimately was laid ruined, destroyed by the Romans, murdering all the Jews. And they would not allow the hundreds of thousands of Jews killed in Beitar to be buried. The corpse lay on the ground. They would not allow the Jews to bury them. But then years later, the emperor allowed, the next emperor allowed, Haruge Beta, the Jews slain in Beta, to be buried. And the rabbis were so thankful, they made a special blessing every day in the grace after meals for the fact that their bodies did not decompose. Hatoiv v'hametiv, that they allowed them to be buried. Until today we have a holiday, the 15th day of Av, the day that they allowed the Jews of Betar to be given a proper Jewish burial. Extraordinary idea when you think about it to demonstrate the value that Judaism, the Torah, halacha, and Jews gave for to take a body and bring it to burial. I want to tell you an incredible story. And this is a story, it, it, I think it just demonstrates to you a perspective of Judaism. You know, rabbis often get interesting questions. That's what they do. <laughs> but there are questions, and there are questions. Here is an incredible question that came to the desk of one of the great poisk of the great halachic authorities in Israel, a man known as Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein. Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein received the following question. Listen, my friends, to what happened. Very, very tragic and complicated story. There was a Jewish man who was living in Eastern Europe when the Nazis came in. 
His wife was taken away by the Germans, and she was murdered. He, her husband, and their baby, their young Jewish boy, managed to save themselves. How? He managed to smuggle into the home of a non-Jewish woman who was a neighbor. She was a single woman. And she agreed to take in the surviving husband and their child into the house in order to be able to camouflage the situation because, of course, you'd be shot immediately. They made believe that they were a married couple. So now this Jewish man who lost his wife in the Holocaust was officially married to this non-Jewish woman who was his neighbor and they were raising this little Jewish boy officially as a non-Jewish child. As the years went on, they developed a true liking to each other and they actually got married. They got a civil marriage and they had a second child together. This child obviously wasn't Jewish because this child, unlike the first one, was born from the non-Jewish woman who saved now her husband and his first baby. The war ends. The Jewish husband decides to immigrate, leave Europe and come to the United States of America. He brings his wife over to America. They're now living in America and they're raising two children. One child lost his mother in the Holocaust, he's a Jewish boy. And the other one is a non-Jewish boy who was born later from the non-Jewish mother. The Jewish boy does not find his place in America, he's uncomfortable in the family. He decides to go to Israel as soon as he can. He goes to Israel, it's amazing, he enrolls in a yeshiva. He gets himself an intense Jewish education. He becomes a serious scholar of Torah, a Jew who lives with Torah, lives with Yiddishkeit. He marries, he builds his family, and he lives in B'nai Brak. His brother, I should say his half-brother, his non-Jewish brother, continues to live in the United States of America with his father, who is assimilated and quite secular and intermarried, and his non-Jewish mother. Not long ago, the religious brother living in B'nai Brak in Israel gets a call. Who's on the phone? His half-brother. Our father died. He wasn't in touch with his father. Our father died. He left over an inheritance. $50 million. There's two children. My brother, you get $25 million, I get $25 million. Now, for any Jew living even in Manhattan, it wouldn't be such bad news. A Jew living in B'nai Brak, the price of 20, the, the, a, a, a gift of $25 million is not bad at all, to put it mildly. He hangs up the phone, but then he, wait, what about burial? What about burial? My brother is not Jewish. The wife is not Jewish. My father is Jewish. He needs a Jewish burial. He calls back his brother. And he says, what about the funeral arrangements? I'm going to arrange for the Hevra Kaddisha. They didn't need the free, uh, the free Hebrew burial society. They didn't need your service. They had $50 million. But I'm going to arrange that he should get a Jewish burial, according to Jewish law, put in a Jewish cemetery. The brother said, no, 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 no. We already have a plot in a Christian cemetery near his wife, I forgot, I said that, I wasn't sure if the mother died, she died already, near his wife, his mother, there's a plot for him, and he's going to be buried there. The brother says, he's a Jew, he should be buried in a Jewish cemetery, according to Jewish law. The other brother says, no, he was living with my mother, they were not living as Jews, I'm not Jewish, she was not Jewish, he used to be Jewish. The brother says, not used to be Jewish, he's still Jewish. They go to court. You know what the verdict of the judge was? Cremate the body, split the ashes, 
half of the ashes get buried in the Christian cemetery near his wife, and half the ashes get buried in the Jewish cemetery. It's the verdict of the judge. The brother calls back, the Jewish brother from Israel calls back his other brother, he says, listen, let's take it out, let's, let's make our own compromise here. Bury him in the Jewish cemetery, according to my wishes, I'll give you $50,000. $50,000. The man says, no way, it's not about the money. He says, name your price. He says, I agree to bury him in a Jewish cemetery if you give me your part of the inheritance. $25 million to give your father a Jewish burial. This Jew is a Torah Jew. What does it say in Shulchan Aruch? What does Jewish law say? He calls up Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein, the son-in-law of Rabbi Yashiv Zatzal. What do I do? What do I do? No, if you were the rabbi, what would you say? What would you say? Not a simple question. Do you have to give up $25 million in order to give your father a Jewish burial? Do you allow him a Christian burial? You know what Rabbi Zilberstein said? He said, you have to give it up. You have to give up the money. Why? Why? He said, because the halacha's Jewish law is that the money of the burial is collected from the assets of the deceased before the inheritance is split up between the ears. So just as if your father had a loan, he owned the bank, $20 million. Before you split up the inheritance, you have to pay back the loan and then you split it up with the, you split up the rest of the money. The money of the burial is taken from his own assets before the inheritance. So usually it costs five, ten, twenty thousand dollars. Here it happens to cost twenty-five million dollars. True, it only costs twenty-five million dollars because your brother is uh, being is playing playing tough. True, but that's what it costs. Where does that money come from? The property, the assets of the father before the inheritance. If that's what it costs, you have to take it from the money of the father. So the twenty-five million dollars goes to the burial. This was the verdict of Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein. Did everybody agree? There were those who questioned the verdict. Some said, this is a Jew, he's a mummer. He grew up as a Jew. He knew about Jewish tradition. He chose to intermarry and to continue living that way till his death. The other son doesn't have an obligation under these circumstances. There's different sides of it that are discussed in the contemporary halachic literature. This was the verdict of Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein. But what do you learn from here? The value that Judaism places on bringing a body to burial. Sometimes, even if it can cost $25 million. Imagine. Why is this so? Why do we oppose cremation? Why are we so meticulous and sensitive to the burial of the body? It's in this law that we see one of those great, beautiful ideas in Judaism, and that's called the dignity of the human body. It's not only the soul that is carved in the image of God. The body itself, our physical material self is carved in the image of God. In fact, the great Kabbalistic and Hasidic masters teach that there is a spirituality and a divinity and a holiness in the body that in a way is even deeper than the holiness of the soul. We know today, cutting edge teachings of psychology and therapy, it's the body that holds the score. It's the wisdom, the deepest wisdom, the deepest trauma, the deepest methods of healing all live in the body. It's not anymore about cognition and figuring things out and anal- analyzing and psychoanalysis. That has its place. But it's in the work we do with our body. The body itself is divine. The body itself represents human infinity. The body itself is considered sacred and holy in Judaism not only when the person is alive, even when the person has passed on and you're looking at a lifeless corpse, 
You're looking not at something that's just a dead rock or dead matter. You're looking at something that is sacred and holy and splendid. In addition to this, Judaism teaches, this was the vehicle with which the person served God during his or her years. Every soul and every body, body as in B-O-D-Y, every soul and every body, every single soul and every single body is given to a human being. They become synthesized and integrated at conception, as the Talmud says in Sanhedrin. And the journey of life begins. Every soul has its unique mission, and this mission can only be completed and implemented through the physical vehicle, which we call the guf, the human body, our living organism. This is the instrument through which we served God, through which we did every mitzvah, through which we brought godliness and holiness and goodness to the world. It's the vehicle that we used in order to learn Torah, in order to pray, in order to think positive thoughts, in order to bring kindness to the world, in order to give charity, in order to engage in gestures and acts of love, in order to utter words of kindness, and in order to live our whole life in a way that represents the harmony and the oneness of creation. A soul without a body cannot achieve anything in this physical world. So our entire enterprise, our entire journey, our entire mission is done in the body and through the body. So the body itself has holiness and the body is also the vehicle through which God's entire purpose and mission is fulfilled. And when a person's life reaches its culmination, we don't just tell the body, okay, you're done, who cares? No, no, this is a body that is always, always taken care of with the utmost sacredness and sensitivity. What is more, one of the 13 principles of Jewish faith, one of the Animamans Maimonides articulates the 13 principles of Jewish faith is the faith in Tchiyas HaMesim, in the resurrection of the dead. That one day, one day, the body, even though it died and decomposed in the earth, it will come back. In other words, it's not just it was on a journey, a beautiful journey, but then the journey ends and the soul continues to live forever and the body gets decomposed in the earth. No. That depositing of the body in the earth is only a preparation for ultimately the body also coming back to eternal life. In science today, they're talking about doubling the lifespan. We doubled the lifespan in the last century. From the early 40s to the 70s, people died in 40, 30, 40, 50. Today the lifespan was doubled, thank God. They're talking about doubling it yet again, 150. And some scientists, even scientists who call themselves completely secular, are talking about eternity. The ability that at 80 or 90 years old, you're going to come into the doctor's office and get a tune-up, and a, new, <laughs> a fresh tune-up on your, on your 70 trillion cells, and you come out a fresh human being. One of the principles of Jewish faith is there's a concept of resurrection even of the dead. So that's the uniqueness and the significance of a body. What is more, the Zohar tells us that as long as the body is not buried, it's painful for the soul because the soul is connected to the body. Even after death, there's a part of the soul that remains deeply connected to the body even if it's not visibly manifested in a physical way that our senses can grasp that life force. And only after the body is buried can the soul, the Zohar says, ultimately experience its ultimate serenity. And there's something even deeper than this. You know, when what's the difference? People often ask about who cares if you cremate, if you bury, what's the difference? But there's a unique and very important distinction because 
when you take, let's say, a plant, you take a seed, you bury it in the ground, the seed decomposes, but it doesn't get lost. Not only does it not get lost, it's the decomposition that allows the nutrients and the, min- the nutrients and the minerals ultimately pr- to produce a new plant. Even a plant, a dead plant, a dead tree that decomposes, what happens? It doesn't disappear. All of the nutrients and all of the minerals go back into the earth and they continue to live and they continue to give rise to new plants, to new produce, to new living organisms, to new vegetation. And sometimes even much greater in quantity and in quality than that which decomposed. It becomes alive again. If you take it and you burn it, so what happens besides the ashes? All of the elements are whisked away and dissipate in the air. When a body is put into the earth, it's not just placed into the earth. It's planted. It's like a plant. It's planted. And what happens when you plant a seed? It decomposes. But it doesn't get lost. It gives the earth, the soil, the enrichment, the vitality, the nutrient it needs that allows life to be continued and we continue to benefit from it. Every body that is, every human body that is decomposed, it becomes part of the earth. It doesn't dissipate. It doesn't get destroyed. It continues to become part of the earth and that is the genesis of the resurrection of the body after Mashiach comes, when the redemption comes. So when we bury a body, it's not the end, it's the beginning. It's like planting a seed. You're planting a seed. What are you doing with the seed? You're throwing it out into the garbage. No, no, no. I'm planting it. Yes, it's going to be covered. It's going to be eclipsed. It's going to rot. It's going to be decomposed. But it's not the end of it. New life is going to come from it. When we take that body, we deposit it into the earth, we're really planting it. And ultimately, a tree is going to emerge. And I'm not only talking about the physical nutrients, minerals that are being given to the earth, enriching the earth and increasing its vitality and its ability to do its work for the sake of our society and civilization and the planet and our very delicate ecosystem. But also on a deeper level, this is the beginning of the resurrection. With cremation, a very different process happens. That's why the Torah prohibits it. I want to share with you something. There was in 1983, and there was a fellow who felt he's soon going to die, and he told his son, I want to be cremated. His son was a little closer to Judaism. And he asked his rabbi what he can tell his father to convince him not to write a final will that they have to cremate the body. So this rabbi didn't know, so he asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote back an incredible response to how the boy can convince the father. It's a long response the Rebbe wrote. I'm going to share a few lines. I'm going to share it in my own language in English. The Rebbe wrote it in Hebrew. He says, somebody says that he wants that they should cremate his body after death. He has to be explained in very clear words and very simple words. That the body exists for a while after death. The body doesn't just decompose right away. The body has a certain life and vibration and vitality that is embedded in it even after the soul has left. As long as the body has not completely, completely decomposed, part of the soul is embedded and connected to the body. Somebody who instructs that somebody's body should be cremated, or somebody who agrees that somebody's body should be cremated, it's not just an agreement to burn a dead body. You're burning part of a living soul that still lives in the body after death. It can be compared on some level to the burning of a living human being. In this case, you're not burning the whole person. 
you're burning part of a living person, which is very cruel, because part of the soul still lives in the body. And even if somebody says to do this to themselves, to burn part of their own soul, this is not something we want to tolerate and embrace. And even if somebody who says, I don't know that this is true, this is saying that I'm justifying it because I don't know that this is true, doesn't take away from the cruelty of it. And when somebody says, so many people do this, why should I be different? The Rebbe concludes, and I have to say in very sharp words, thousands of Nazis burnt literally living people. And the Nazis who perpetrated this included scientists, doctors, merchants, and people who had families, etc. And yet they were capable of engaging in this. Now obviously it doesn't mean to compare it to the malicious barbarity and sadism of the murderers of the Germans. But he's trying to explain that if the cleanses of perception are cleansed, if you could see a little deeper into reality, you know that a dead body is not just a dead body. There's a part of the neshama that lives there. Don't burn it. Allow it to be buried. Allow it to come back to its nest, to its home, so that the soul in the right way can ascend to where it has to ascend and the body can decompose and become part of the living soil, the way it has to become part of the living soil. My dearest friends, I want to share with you an incredible story. I thank my friend and colleague from Los Angeles, Rabbi Yoli Gold, who made this story quite known. But I verified it. I verified it because I wanted to know some details that I didn't know from the person with whom the story happened. Rabbi Stephen Ammon is a rabbi in Deal, New Jersey. Every year, he and his wife, before Rosh Hashanah, go to the gravesite of her mother, his mother-in-law, together with her father and their siblings, to pray to God for a new year at the resting place of their mother. One year before Rosh Hashanah, they knew they will not be able to get there. And a few weeks before, they happened to be taking a road trip from Deal to Brooklyn, New York, to visit their grandchildren. On the highway, Rabbi Stephen Ammon sees a sign, Staten Island. So he has this thought, he tells his wife, you know what? The cemetery where your mother is, is not far from here. We're not going to be able to come before Rosh Hashanah. Do you want me to take the exit? We can go to the resting place, a few minutes, pray there, a few weeks before Rosh and then we'll continue to Brooklyn. They weren't in a major rush. She says, sure, that would be great. And he takes the exit, he goes to the cemetery, it's quiet, it's a regular afternoon, nobody is there. They're both standing at the graveside of his mother-in-law and davening to Hashem to bless them and their family and the Jewish people in the world with a beautiful, sweet, wonderful year. Suddenly he hears a commotion and he sees a hearse is driving into the cemetery, stops right behind where they're standing, and another few cars. People come out. There's a funeral. Somebody comes over to him and says, you know, we have nine people. We're missing one person for a son to say Kaddish. Would you mind joining us? He says, sure, it would be a great privilege. And he tells his wife, I'm going over to the funeral just a few yards away. When you're finished, I'm there, and then we'll go continue to Brooklyn. And he's there, and he completes the minion. They lower the coffin into the grave, the open grave. And the son says, Kaddish. And Rabbi Stephen Ammon is the 10th person to answer, Amen, Yeheshmei Rabban, this Kaddish, for this deceased man. And then the son and all the people who were there leave the cemetery. And Rabbi Stephen Ammon comes over to me and says, Hey, guys. The corpse was never buried. They lowered the coffin into the open grave, but they did not cover it. They didn't bury him. He says, why don't we bury him? And they said, oh, no, 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 that's that's messy. 
We paid the cemetery administration. They hire somebody who comes with a tractor and he's going to do the burial. He said, no, the mitzvah is that we should bury the person. We hired somebody to do it. It's fine. They left. He's there alone. He remembers something. When he was a bar mitzvah boy, he came to learn in the yeshiva in Baltimore, near Yisrael, near Israel of Baltimore. And one of the first laws he learned, or his teacher taught him is, that if a Jew is left in the ground without burial, he's called a mace mitzvah, even if there's family. But the family deserts the corpse. It's a mitzvah on any Jew, no difference who, to take care of this lifeless corpse and bring it to burial. He remembered this. He said, here's the opportunity. It's my mitzvah. I have to do it. I can't leave. Sure enough, the guy in the tractor is approaching the grave to do his job. Rabbi Stephen Amon goes over to him and says, Hey, I have good news for you. Today is your lucky day. You can go home. You can go home. I'll do the work. Just get me a shovel. The man was all too happy. He gives the rabbi a shovel. And off he goes. And Rabbi Stephen Amon stands for the next 90 minutes, lifting up clod after clod of earth and burying this person in the grave. As he said, it was a surreal scene. The place was quiet. It was empty. His wife was praying at the gravesite of her mother, and he's standing there alone for an hour and a half. Hard work. Lifting up the shovel, clod after clod, burying a Jew. He did not know. didn't know his name, did not know who he was. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he is the one burying this man. He finishes the burial. The coffin is now completely covered. The grave is filled till the top. He goes to summon his wife and says, come, we're ready to go. An hour and a half later, he sees a marker, which usually has the name of the person who passed away. He puts it into the grave, and he reads the name. And then he writes down the name on a piece of paper, so he should remember it. They get into the car. Off they are to Brooklyn to visit the Enoch, the grandchildren. And the whole way he's thinking one thing. Why me? What's the significance of this coincidence? We weren't supposed to be in the cemetery today. It's only because we're not going to be there Rosh Hashanah and I decided the last minute, let's make a stop and my wife agreed and we came there and suddenly there's a funeral and I'm the one who's completing the minions so the son could say, and then I'm left alone to bury this person. Why? Now one part of him is saying, it's a coincidence, you did a nice thing, you did a wonderful thing, let's move on. But another part of him was saying, no, this is too strange, this is too intriguing, I have to get to the bottom of this. Who is this man whom I just buried? And he starts calling around, and then he decides to call one person, who was one of the well-known Jewish faces for many decades, the American scene, of Jewish activists and builders of Jewish institutions, Rabbi Herman Neuberger, of blessed memory, built the famous academy, the famous yeshiva, Ne'er Yisrael, with the Rosh Yeshiva Rav Ruderman, Zeichet Tzadikim Levrach, and he led this institution and the Jewish community of Baltimore for more than 50 years. And he was involved in many Jewish communities and organizations and schools, etc. And he calls up Rabbi Herman Neuberger, who's been the principal of his yeshiva when he was a youngster. And he says, Rabbi Neuberger, I, maybe you'll be able to crack the code. And he tells him this whole crazy story and how he ended up burying this guy. And he says, and I can't figure out why me? And Rabbi Herman Neuberger says to him, who, what, what's, what's his name? Do you, have, do you have a name of this person? And he says the name. And he can hear that Rabbi Neuberger is stunned. He like drops the phone. 
And he says, Rabbi Neuberger, what? What happened? Rabbi Neuberger is very emotional. He says, Stephen, let me tell you a story. You were a bar mitzvah boy. You grew up in Seattle, Washington. There was no Jewish school there. Your father, a passionate, committed Jew, wanted you to get a Torah Jewish education, but there was no Jewish school there. So he decided he's going to send you to the Baltimore Yeshiva, to Ne'i Yisrael of Baltimore. And he bought you a ticket. One way was $300. This is 55 years earlier. $300 one way. And you end up in Baltimore so you can have a real education filled with Yiddishkeit, with knowledge of Judaism and celebration of Judaism and Jewish life. But then your father loses his job. And he doesn't have any money. He doesn't even have money to support his own family, never mind to pay tuition. And he calls me up one day, he says, Rabbi Neuberger, I don't have a penny. What should I do? But I want my child to have a Jewish education. I want him to grow up as a proud, knowledgeable, passionate, committed Jew who's part of the timeless, golden chain of Jews and Judaism. And I'm thinking to myself, Rabbi Neuberger says, I'm thinking to myself, I'm behind in payroll. My teachers desperately need money. Our school is penniless. I need every dollar I can get for tuition. What am I supposed to do? But I did not have the heart to expel you from school. But I couldn't do this. I couldn't afford it. I had to pay teachers. And I decided to go and find somebody to pay for your tuition so that I shouldn't have to expel you from school. And I promised your father we will keep you here in Baltimore and we'll figure it out. And I called a Jew who I knew has a warm heart for Jewish education. I told him the story and this Jew responded immediately. He says, don't worry, it's on me. I will pay tuition for this boy until he graduates your school. And for the next four years, till you graduated high school, he paid full tuition for you every single year. You are a rabbi today. You are a proud Jew today. You are a learned Jew today. You have built a beautiful, amazing Jewish family today because of this man. And Rabbi Stephen Amon on the telephone says, Rabbi Neuberger, why did you never tell me the story? And why did you not allow me to thank this person? And Rabbi Neuberger said, because he liked giving charity clandestinely. He did not want me to tell anybody what he has done. And Rabbi Stephen Amon says, Rabbi Neuberger, who was this man? Who, who is this person? Can you tell me now? And Rabbi Neuberger says, the man you buried today, all by yourself, he was the person who sponsored your education more than a half a century ago. He is the man responsible for who you are today. He is the man who ensured that you would be able to come to yeshiva and learn that law that one is obligated to bury a corpse if the family does not do the job. He is the one who allowed you to study this law. This man never wanted anyone to know, but God knew. And God ensured that you would show up today at his funeral to say thank you to this special man. You would allow the boy, this child, to say Kaddish for this person. And you single-handedly would allow this person's holy body to be deposited in the earth so that his soul can continue its journey to the world of truth. This man, in some ways, can be considered your spiritual father. And then I realized the Torah describes one form of kindness as true kindness, chesed shel emes, 
Jacob tells Joseph, I need you to do with me true kindness. Chesed ve'emes, burying the dead is called kindness of truth. Chesed shall emes. Why? The commentators explain, because it's the only time I do somebody a favor and I cannot expect him to do it, to reciprocate. I know what Yogi Berra said. Yogi Berra said, you make sure to show up at your friend's funeral so that he shows up at yours. But that's a Yogi Berra's. Chesed Shalemes means there's no reciprocity. I'm doing you a favor. I'm not expecting anything in return. But it also means something else. God is the one who pays me back in his own way, in his own time. This person raised a Jewish child, allow him to build a Jewish future. He didn't want anything in return. It was a chesed shal emes. But God made sure that he was paid back. The student, the spiritual child came back to be there for this person as he completed his journey on this world. And the same is true with each and every one of us. Tonight, as we help this extraordinary organization, as we assist and commit to be there for the Hebrew Free Burial Association by giving a donation, by giving a contribution. We are involved in a chesed shal emes. It's not people that we know, but it's ensuring that every soul and every body, and every body as in body and body, pun intended, is given its proper dignity. This is the true and ultimate kindness which God knows. And God pays back in due time, in his own unique way. Friends, it's an honor and a privilege to be part of this great work of allowing this great association to plant everybody in the earth after they finish their journey on earth so that this body, as it's planted in the earth, can experience its ultimate spiritual peace and serenity until that day when the plant blossoms once again with Tchiyas HaMesim, with the true and complete redemption speedily in our days. The prophet Isaiah says, Those who lay in the earth will arise and dance as past, present, and future are united forever in great joy and celebration. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.